Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 60 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach, and I work with big-hearted educators that are ready to prioritize their well-being and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Today is a very special episode of the podcast. I chat with a big-hearted human that many of us have admired for years, Lisa Curry. But before I jump into the conversation, I wanted to let you know about exciting changes that I'm currently working on and will be launching soon. This year, I have been experimenting with the format of my signature wellbeing program for educators, Energy by Design, and I have worked out what really works for busy educators. The program has transitioned from a 10-week intensive to a four-week circuit breaker. The four weeks is long enough to see a big shift in the way participants think, feel, and behave. However, we all know that four weeks is not long enough to sustain lasting change. Ongoing support and accountability is vital. And so I am creating an online membership for educators that have completed the program to build a community of thriving, big-hearted educators that are committed to feeling good and functioning well despite the pressures of school life. Just imagine the positive ripple effect that we will be able to create together in schools and the wider community. So if you're keen to know when the doors open for the next round of Energy by Design, join the waitlist now. In this episode, I have the privilege of chatting with the golden girl of Australian swimming, super mum and now proud granny, Lisa Curry. Lisa is a triple Olympian and wellness entrepreneur who grew up in Brisbane and has lived her life in the public eye for four decades. In 1994, she was awarded the Medal of Order of Australia in recognition for her swimming achievements. This year, Lisa published her long-awaited book, Lisa, a memoir of 60 years of life, love and loss. In this deeply personal and moving memoir, Lisa reflects on a life well lived and the experiences that have shaped her, swimming, family, marriage, divorce, and found love again. It is a powerful story of resilience, of highs and lows, of starting out and starting again. In this conversation, we discuss the qualities that make a high impact coach, why a strong work ethic is vital to success, her heartbreaking struggle to support her daughter, Jamie, and so much more. A heads up, this is an adult conversation and we discuss some challenging topics related to disordered eating and mental illness. Please take a moment to consider if you're in the right headspace to listen to this conversation and if you would like to process this further, you can call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. Also, a note on the audio. The audio is hard to hear at times and we have worked tirelessly to improve it to make it the best it can be. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lisa Curry. Lisa, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you, Meg. Nice to be here. Your book took me on such an emotional roller coaster. I had moments where I could barely breathe, just that sheer heartbreak, but then moments of where I was fist pumping, thought, yes, what an absolute rock star. And this is our life. It's ebbs and flows, there's beauty and there's pain. So what motivated you to share so openly about your story? Well, as you probably know, because I know you've got my first book there on your desk, I've been writing books and doing articles for magazines for so many years, for for 40 years actually. And most of the time they've been pretty good, 
But unfortunately, over the years, there's been some really horrific, untrue things written about me and my family. And by doing my own book, it's truthful, it's honest, it's raw, and you're not left wondering if it's true or not, like you read in the magazines. And most things in the magazines are made up. So it's just, it portrays you in a certain way. And then therefore, I guess you get, you get the haters, you get people who can't stand Lisa Curry or they can't stand someone else. And it's based on a perception of what they've read in magazines, right? So it's not the real story. So I think when, when someone does an autobiography or, or memoir, it's our story and it's our truth and it's all on paper. My kids will never have to wonder what mum did, what granny was like. And in fact, one of my friends read it not long ago. Two of my other friends, they won't read it unless I've signed it. <laughs> so one friend only got three pages in and started bawling, so she couldn't even read it. But my other friend, she said, gee, I thought I knew you. But she had no idea of my life before we became friends, which was 23 years of swimming and, and outrigging and training. And I think a lot of people have said the same thing. Two things they say is um, they couldn't put the book down, but also they had no idea what went into becoming an athlete and trying to maintain your status at elite level. And that's what really struck me reading the book, Lisa, is your fierce determination to get the job done, but then also this big-hearted human that just wraps around other people and this supportive nature. And I find that so interesting because there's not many athletes that I have seen that have just this big heart, so fierce to the line on the wall, but then get out and just embrace other people. Well, that's just being fair. That's just being a good human, I think. But I think that also might come from the fact that I wanted to be a phys ed teacher when I was at school. I loved my phys ed teacher. She always took time out to make me feel like I belonged and felt special. And she was really great. And I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. I went to a teacher's college for three half years. I didn't get to finish. And my coach was a, an amazing human as well, Ms. Um, Joe King. And I was going to say Mr. King because we always called him Mr. King. But his way of treating people and how he made you feel, because I was with him for 20 years, it has to rub off. You know, I have a real empathy for other people and I think what you're doing and some of the things that you say that are important to you, I wholeheartedly agree and support you in all of that because kids today, you know, they're in a, a completely different world to how we grew up and I think need to be probably nurtured a little differently and I always wanted to open up my own school <laughs> because I didn't think kids were learning what they needed to learn. I wish that I had learned other things at school. And reading your book and your relationship with your coach, Mr King, just made my heart sing because to have someone so steady but so influential in your career, personally and professionally, that's just so unique. Can you tell us a little bit about what made Mr. King so special to you? He was the sort of guy that took a real interest in his athletes, not only to try and get them to be the fastest ever and to win medals, but he took a real interest in them as boys and girls. And, you know, he always took time out to talk to them and explain things about life to us and, I'm just not saying this. Any other swimmer that trained with Mr. King would say exactly the same thing. He was a very, very special man. 
And I think a lot of the philosophies that he had definitely passed on to, you know, to the point where I became a coach as well. I, I didn't see the phys ed teacher career, didn't finish that path, but I went on to coach for 20 years as well. And just trying to get the best out of people is a real skill, I think. And it's not whether you win the medal, it's what it makes of you trying to win and trying to be the best that you can. Because so many people get by each day. Property is okay. Being average is okay. And that's totally fine if that's where you want. But for a lot of people who want to take that step up and be better than they were yesterday and strive and they have this goal that they can see every night, they go to bed and they dream it, they see it, they write it, they think it, they feel it, which is how I was. If you want to be like that, then you have to do something different. You have to step up every single day, not just when the sun is shining. And one of the things that really bothers me these days, particularly in primary schools, is that every kid gets a ribbon because every kid is a winner. Well, I've got some bad news for them. No, you're not. You're not the winner. Someone came first and someone came last. And who are we pandering to? The parents? Johnny comes home with a ribbon and says, look, Mum, I'm a winner, but he came last which is fine if he had a good time. But, you know, the expectations then on those children is that everything, I will be given everything because everyone's a winner. But we have to learn that there's winning and there's losing, there's success and then there's failure, there's risk, there's challenges, there's obstacles, there's problems, there's joy, there's victory, there's everything that a human has to go through in life to come out as a, a, a rounded person at the end of the day. So many things to learn. And then all these things we don't really learn in school, particularly if being average is okay. Yes, and learning that if you want something, it requires effort. It's a repeated effort over time. And as I was reading your book and I was thinking about all those kilometres you would have done, what did you learn through that sheer determination over the years of what it means to be the best? Well. I mean, you look, you talk about all those kilometres and I was a sprinter. Can you imagine the kilometres that someone like Ian Thorpe used to swim, you know? And as you're ploughing through the pool every single day for hours on end, people can't understand why we love that, but it's all because we want to be two-tenths of a second faster next year. It's a, such a small amount of time with all that work you have to do and there's so many areas in an event where you have to be absolutely perfect and precise and controlled in every single part of that race to get it right on the day and you have to be pretty smart to put all that together but then when all that finishes all of those things that you've learned in your sport you can apply to something else what I did I applied it to another sport where I coached for 20 years and, and my team of girls, you know, most of them were mums, most of them were not athletes at all. We all went off to Hawaii and won the world championships, not once, but four times because I was able to instill a couple of things, work ethic, intensity, and all the same things, dedication, commitment, motivation, perseverance, all that sort of thing. But key part is being on with that intensity and work ethic every single day, every single session. Because if you don't do that every single session someone else does, they're going to take your spot. 
So you don't ever want to be in a 10-man sport. You don't want to be number 11 or 12. You are, there's something missing. And the girls who are at the top, the people who are at the top, they all do something a little bit different. You know, technically, strategically, training-wise, intensity, they turn up more, they do the work. And it's not, like everyone can do it. It's not just for the chosen few. I had a girl, and you probably read about it in the book, who um, she was not an athlete at all. And long story short, she was on our world championship team and we won. But you would never, ever think in your life, if you looked at her now or then, that she would be the sort of person that would stand on the dais and win a world championship. But ordinary people can do extraordinary things if they want to. And that's the key, if they want to. You can be a brain surgeon if you want to. You can be a great something if you want to. So it all comes down to, you know, waking up in the morning going, you know what, I have to do this today, 10 things I must do today to get myself closer to my goal. I said to my son a couple of years ago, you know, I really, really think you could be a great swimmer, Jet, 50, 100, 200 freestyle, really think, let's get you to the best coach, you know, we'll set you up. And he just looked at me and said, Mum, I don't love swimming. I don't want to do it. And there's your answer. Someone who is so talented, but they have no passion for it. Yes, and how important it is that we have those two elements, the passion and the talent for it. You know, I've worked in schools where there is so much talent. I remember one student, she was so talented in the pool, but she didn't love it. She would cry before every event. It was her family that loved it, but she didn't love it. She wanted to do something else and just noticing what is our young people telling us? Do they have that love? And maybe they don't have the talent, but they've got the love. And how can we support them to develop that talent? Say, I mean, I was probably quite talented as a young kid, but my work ethic was over the top. So there might have been someone who was really talented and didn't have to do much work that would swim better than me. So it's kind of, you don't really know what comes first, but talent, passion, work ethic three things that are super important and also um, good technique in any sport. You've got to teach the kids young, get them to the best coaches before they're eight or 10 years of age. Yeah, because coaching is so important, as you say, to have that skill so then you're not spending a lot of time down the track unlearning some technique to relearn it. Terribly difficult to get the bad habits out and relearn those. So, and I think that's where I was taught very, very well from a young age from my coach, Harry Gallagher. And when I look at your career, I see when you first went to Olympic Games, but what really stood out for me is when you decided after having your first child that you were going to swim again. And so for most people, the idea of motherhood and professional athlete just feels like water and oil. How did you make that work? Yeah, I had my first baby and that I had five years out of the pool. And then I met an American girl. Her name was Sandy Nelson Bell. And I'm 33, she was. And she was swimming at the World Masters Championships in Brisbane. And she swam faster than any Australian swimmer had ever swum in a 1500 freestyle. She was 33. I thought, wow, that's so old. And I went and visited her. I was totally inspired by her. And I just thought, if she can do it, I can do it. I mean... I have good work hours, plenty of time. I have one baby. I have a husband and mother-in-law and my mum to look after the baby. And I just decided, I think I can do this again. I'm going to give it a shot. 
So I did, <laughs> not once but twice. <laughs> so what did Mr King say when you said, I'm, I want to have another go? Well, the first comeback, he was quite okay with that. It was the second comeback that he was a bit, um, oh, he wasn't negative about it, but he kept saying, why do you want to keep pushing yourself? You know, don't push yourself so hard. Just have an easy life. And I think the the main reason why I made a second comeback was I really, really, really wanted to stand on the Olympic diets. I would have given anything to stand on the Olympic diets. I missed out on so many occasions by as little as two-tenths of a second. But I realised after I read the book, after I finished writing the book and read the book, I realised that probably the reason why I didn't get that, well, I was so close, was because I kept having children in between each Olympics. You know, so I'd be in, <laughs> I'd be in the best shape and then I'd go and fall pregnant. And then I'd get in the best shape again and then fall pregnant again. So, I, you know, my kids are Olympics apart. But I, you know what? I have no regrets. I wouldn't have it any other way. It was just fabulous the way it was. And I love how you share that story of someone inspired you. I love that idea of you can't be what you can't see. So someone inspired you, thought, well, I could do that. And then you went on to do that twice. You know, a lot of women find that transition to motherhood really hard physically. And so to see that you took on that challenge, that is so inspiring for so many of us. Well, you have to be really organised. First of all, there's a thought process. You know what? I could really do that. I really want to do that. That's the easy part. Then it gets progressively harder. Then how am I going to do that? Who do I need? How am I going to do it? What hours do I need? Who do I need to help me? And then, you know, you've got to go and do the training. The race, the, the decision to do it can be the easiest and the hardest decision to make. It's easy to make because it's what you want to do. It's hard to make because you realise what you've got yourself into. Like, are you getting yourself in too deep? What if you don't make it? What if you fail? All these things. And then at the end, when you have done all the work and you stand on the blocks and you get ready to dive in, that's the easy part. You just do what you do because you're trained for that. So there's easy and hard bits in, in every step of the process. But I think... The main thing is, I, I mean, I see it all the time. I see mothers run marathons. I see them winning races here, there and everywhere. And it can be done. You just have to have a really supportive network, a supportive husband. Um, really lucky I had my mum, I had my mother-in-law, and we just made it work. I did a lot less work, child, but um, once again, I changed what I did to make it work for me, but I found a, a different way, and it's not always... If you want to be successful of this, it's not that's the way you do it. There could be several ways to do it. And I found it a different way. And that's so beautiful to think about. Considering our reality, what is possible? What is the pathway forward? And who can support me on this journey? I loved reading about in the mornings that you and Grant would tag team as you'd go off to swim or your mum would help out at a pool or your mother-in-law would help out at a pool. And I think that's so important for us to normalise that no one becomes great alone, that we need the support of others and to be willing to receive the support of others. Yeah, it's important to talk to those in your closest network that are going to help you, let them know what you want to do, why you want to do it. And if you don't have them on board, it's very difficult, I would imagine. But yeah, I, w I was really lucky because mum and Faye and Grant were really fabulous in helping me get through all of those amazing things that I did 
I, you know, I, I probably couldn't have done it without them. So when did you decide to finally retire? I finally retired the day that Jamie beat me in a 25-metre freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I could say now, oh, you know, and like, like every time I watch Commonwealth Games or the Olympics, oh, I wish I was there again because I miss it. I could go down to the pool, really inspired, swim 200 metres, go, oh, now I need to have a nap. Comes a time when you know that that's not for you anymore, that you cannot physically, even though you probably mentally think you can do it, physically you've got to know your limits. I've been racing since the age of 10, right through to only a couple of years ago. So I've been racing for a long time. And now I don't, I'd like to race but I don't want to do the work to do the race. <laughs> That's the difference. You know, I don't want to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go to a 5 a.m. swim. I, I don't want to do that anymore. That's a moment in time in my life. It's, it's been there. I've done that. I've done a great job and I, I don't desire to do that anymore. It's interesting to notice that sometimes our mind still wants that, still yearns for that, the energy, the excitement, the people around, the connection but then also coming in line with what our body is able to do and how our, our body's needs shift and change over our journey in our lifetime. Yeah, and I think I'm finding that now that my 50 years of training is kind of taking a bit of a toll on me, on my health. I do have a defibrillator. I've had AF, you know, in the last couple of months, twice I've been in the hospital and they just said it's just years and years and years of training where your heart pumps hard and fast for a long time and your heart gets bigger and it stretches, you get scarring, the electrical system doesn't work properly. So it's a consequence of my life. And I said to my cardiologist, if I had known back then that I would be getting this now, would I have changed anything? Would I have backed off? And the answer is no, I wouldn't have changed anything because you always think nothing's going to happen to you, right? Think, oh, I'm healthy, I'm fit, I can live till I'm 100. But you never know. You don't know what's around the corner. So I do have some um, little issues that I'm just dealing with at the moment and have done in the past, you know, 10 years or so. But, oh, well, it's like my four-year-old grandson says. He said, you get what you get, Granny, and you don't get upset. <laughs> Oh, four-year-olds, don't you love them? Yeah. So what was your experience of raising three children? Well, it was wonderful. It was all I ever wanted. I really wanted to be a mum. Uh, I used to go into the creche when mum was 10-pin bowling and I'd go into the creche and play with all the babies and always wanted to have children. I knew I wanted to have them early and I did have Jamie when I was 23. Would have liked another child, but... Yeah, we decided not to, and it's just busy. Life is busy, but not, life is never the same after you have children. And now my daughter is um, experiencing that. She's got three little boys, and she said to me one day, she said, Mum, I know how much you love us, your children. She said, but I never knew how much love you could have for a child. It wasn't until she had her own that she really knew a mother's love, and it's really nice to hear that. And I can't imagine what it would be like to see your daughter become a mother. Is that quite special? Oh, really special, yeah. Because Morgan, I mean, Morgan's had a fabulous life. She said, Mum, dancing is like my Olympics because she was dancing in France, in Paris at Moulin Rouge and 
she was training nine hours a day. She didn't get through on the first audition. She got through on the second audition. And she just, if she could go back on stage tomorrow, she would at the Moulin Rouge. And well, she danced the other night. She does Latin dancing now. She's the be most beautiful dancer. And, you know, to see her become a mum as well. And <laughs> and even yesterday, she's like, oh, no, I'm so tired, you know. Three kids and I said, tell me about it. never ends. So, um, yeah, granny to the rescue every now and again. It's really nice. And to have that support of a mother when you're in the throes of early childhood, I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and it's so often I just need to talk to mum, need to have that reassurance that it's normal and everyone has hard days. It's, it's not easy for everybody <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the biggest piece of advice I give to Morgan is if the kids are all asleep, have a sleep. Try and get that rest to catch up. The washing can wait. The kitchen can wait. Just have a snooze and, and catch up a little bit. And also, as much as there will be a lot of parents who may disagree with me on this, when you need a rest, put the kids in front of the TV let them watch a movie. And you can just have that hours that because you've got to put your oxygen mask on first. You're not up and ready to go and away enthusiasm. It's really hard to look after family when your cup is empty. It's so true. And I think giving ourselves permission to rest, to recover, so then we can be present with our young people. And also for teachers who are listening, it's important that we rest and take respite because then when we're with students in the classroom, we can be much more present instead of constantly distracted and just thinking about how tired we are. I mean, I know for a fact, and you probably do too, when you're really exhausted, it's, it's hard to think. It's hard to be creative. It's hard on your patience. Sleep is really important. So anyone, teacher, parent, worker, whoever, you know, we've really got to think about what can I do each day to make myself feel like I can get through the day? Not feel amazing and like jumping out of your skin, but how can I get through the day with ease and contentment and peace? And these are the things that we talk about in our, our business, on my business site, my online website, Happy Healthy You. We have over 500,000 women in our groups. And we have a team of naturopaths that talk to them every single day. And we talk about how to get quality sleep. What's a drink you can have before you go to sleep that can help you fall asleep? All these little tricks and everything, that's what we do every single day. And, uh, you know, it's a great company with great products and we help a lot of ladies. It is so important because as we learn how to care and nourish ourselves, then we can pass that on to our next generation because our young people are looking at us as adults to see what's it like to be an adult? Is it okay to rest? Is it okay to look after ourselves? Or do we have to just keep pushing and be stressed and under pressure all the time? They're watching to see the way that we care for ourselves and using that as their blueprint in the future. Yeah, and everyone is different. I remember when I used to go away and work for a day and come back, you drive to the airport, you catch the plane, you go to the, the hotel, you speak at a dinner, you come home, plane, cars, taxis, but you get home and all the kids want to see you. And the, I remember the first thing I used to do is, I'm just going to go and have a shower and then I'll come back and then I'll come down and see you all. So I just used that 10 minutes in the shower just to, oh, okay, have a nice shower, you know, wash your hair, stand under the hot water and then get ready for the kids. Because as soon as you're on, you've got to, be on right 
I think there's a story in the book too where I talk about one morning and I was lying in bed and one of the kids said, oh, I'm tired, Mum. Oh, I'm tired too. And I said, well, I'm tired too. Why don't we all just stay home from school today? <laughs> just, uh, we all had a sleep in and lay in the big bed and watch movies all day. And you would have felt so good by the end of that day. And then the next day you'd have been right and ready to go because you've given yourself permission to just rest, recharge and go again. Yeah. No one's really going to judge you for that. Like, who cares, really? One day off school for the kids just to have a at-home day is good for the soul. And it's also teaching them to be in tune with their body and considering their needs instead of this notion that when I feel tired, oh, I just have to work harder. Just not now. Don't think about it. We're actually role modeling. Like, we are feeling tired. It's been really big. Everyone in the house is tired. Let's just stop. Mm. Let's honor that need. Yeah, well, one of the most important things about swimming or athletics, any sort of sport, is recovery. Recovery is the most important aspect of your training programs. If you don't have that recovery time, you can't keep going. You just can't. You just can't keep training, 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 training. Something will give. So you've got to train a little bit and then recover. Then train a little bit, recover, train, recover. So it's just like this up and down, up and down, up and down to when you get to your goals. So same with kids, they need recovery as well. They need to be able to lie around and do nothing. Do kids do that? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I know the little grandson, four-year-old, four he's got so much energy, but, you know, I can plonk him down in front of the TV for a little bit of um, movie time, and we sit there together and have a good old laugh at the movie, and it's just a bit of downtime. So everyone's different. They have to do the life that suits them, and I don't think we should judge anybody and there's so much around about you know how to be the perfect mother no you got to be the mother you can be and maybe if we can look at parenting and caring for people with that athletic lens of work recover work recover and actively putting in more recovery into our daily lives so we can be in the work of caring for young people well caring for our young people and ourselves and having time for our partner as well because they often miss out too. Yes, that is so true. In your book, you openly talked about Jamie's journey. So could you tell us when you first noticed that your first daughter, Jamie, was struggling with her mental health? Yeah, it was probably around about 14 or 15. But she was a really good little swimmer, actually. And um, then she quit swimming because she said the kids were being mean to her at school, calling her names. And- so she quit swimming because she thought she was too muscular. I mean, going to be an athlete, you need to have muscles. So she went into another sport, outrigging, which is what I did, and they were being weighed. Now, why would you weigh a 15, 16-year-old? It's beyond me, absolutely beyond me. And anyway, she used to come home crying, saying she was um, 200 grams heavier than yesterday. Jamie would eat a lot of food and then disappear. But we didn't realise, we didn't know at the time, we didn't realise really what was going on because no one spoke about it. It was all taboo. And we're talking nearly 20 years ago. Now we talk about it a lot more. So, yeah, around about 15 or 16, it started and flipping between anorexia and bulimia. And we didn't really know what was going on until much later. But then much later was almost too late. Psychological damage that it starts to have on you is, takes its toll. 
slowly eating away at a person. I was at a function the other day where there was a few girls clearly had eating disorders and their mums were there too and I could see the desperation in the mum's eyes clinging onto their children. Beautiful looking girls, very, very thin. And it doesn't matter. You know, you can say this is really damaging your body but they are in such a state that they think they're okay or they think it's not going to happen to them or they can get better whenever they choose. But the problem is that it eats away at a cellular level. It starts to damage your body on a cellular level to the point where it starts to affect your cognitive thinking and decision-making. It starts to be really confusing for an adult. And you think, why can't you think about this logically? Why can't you listen to us and understand what's going on? So logic and common sense go out the window. And then it just got it just got so bad and then started drinking to dull the pain, self-harming, all these horrific things that as a parent you just you don't even want to you don't even want to know about. You just think that hopefully that will never happen to my child. As I talk about in the book, it just was an escalator and they didn't know where she was on the escalator. As a parent, what is it like? trying to navigate supporting a young person and also navigate the health system? So frustrating. A couple of things, because we're in the public eye and because, you know, the last 10 years or so when paparazzis were always hanging around and trolling online, all that sort of thing, it was really hard. You know, I wanted to scream out to the world. I, wanted to buy, I actually wanted to go public and say, my daughter is struggling. Can anyone help us? But you can't do that because we couldn't do that because she was so fragile and sensitive that, that would have been the end for her. She, she wouldn't have left the house. So we couldn't do that. Navigating her was really difficult because she's an adult and they all say they know what they're doing. I'm getting better. It's like, okay. And then you've got psychiatrists and psychologists who won't talk to you because they're an adult. So there's patient confidentiality. And then you've got the hospital system and as wonderful as the doctors and the nurses are, and they all are amazing. We love them all. It's not them. It's like the system is wrong. There's nowhere for someone like Jamie. There's plenty of them around. They're not sick enough to stay in hospital, but they're too sick for rehab. So where do they go? They can only be at home or if they're independent and fall back into their addictions, whatever their addictions are. It was so frustrating. I said to Grant one night, if I just could smash my head on that brick wall, it would feel but like I just couldn't, we couldn't find the answer. And as much as we tried and tried to find the answers, there just, there was none. I got escorted out of emergency one morning because I was being too vocal because they were going to send her home because they said all her tests were normal. And I said, which part of this is normal? She's really sick. They couldn't keep her there. And I couldn't work out why they couldn't fix her. It's just, I don't know, it makes no sense. The, the system doesn't work for all the Jamie's out there. And um, one of the, so hard to talk about, um, one of the reasons why I do talk about it is to try and help all the other Jamie's out there and to hope that her life, matters in some way that it might be able to help someone else getting help early recognizing the red flags early trying to um 
get to it a lot earlier than what we could because we didn't know. There's a couple up here, friends of ours, that have started an end-eating disorder clinic up here. And he says he often has parents call him and their kids are 7, 8, 9, 10 years of age. I mean, that's horrific. So, um, you know what, I just, I just wish I had the answers because I, I don't want parents to go through what we're going through because it's just relentless. It's, it's, um, it's not one day that I don't think about Jamie, that I don't think about what we could have done differently, think about was there a better way, because that's what we do. We're very analytical. We find different ways to be successful, to get what we need, and we can't, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And, Lisa, we're so grateful that you're willing to share such a hard, hard story because there are so many young people like Jamie that are in this position where there's this real gap we can't stay at hospital, but we can't be at home. And then also the amount of stress and pressure it puts on families trying to find that support. And we have this big gap that needs attention. The person who can help themselves the most is themselves. Like It wasn't from lack of trying from so many people to help Jamie, but she was the one that needed to do it. But once the brain starts getting affected. Like I said before, the common sense and logic just doesn't come into the conversation. So if you can get it earlier, it can make a big difference. But look, I don't know. I don't know why kids get mental health. I don't know why people have addictions. I don't know why it starts or where it comes from. You bring up three children exactly the same in exactly the same household. How come one can get everything? I just, I don't have the answers and it frustrates me that I don't have the answers, but I can't believe that our brilliant minds in this country and around the world can't work it out, can't work out where it starts or why it starts. Maybe it just is. Maybe one child in every family will get something. I don't know. I don't know. It is such a hard space for so many of us and this is why we're so passionate about breaking down that taboo, as you said earlier, breaking down the stigma and having much more open conversations as a community. I'm in contact regularly with teachers or uh, parents who contact me and say, Meg, my daughter, my son is struggling with this. Can you please just talk about it on the podcast so people understand what we're going through? Because I get sick of comments from other people in the community or other, other people in the school because they just don't understand. And so I feel having these conversations are so important because it brings this awareness that we're all human and the human experience is very, very different for different people and some people are sensitive to the human experience more than others. So how can we support and normalise and have more honest and open conversations about the beauty but also the pain of being human? You're right. You know, every human, even if they're walking the same path, sees it differently and I just think this is the type of subject that I would like to be taught in school you know that it's okay to walk a different path it's okay to go through that door if that door doesn't open for you it's not your door go to the next door it's okay and it's like Alice in Wonderland you know she comes to the end of the road there's a fork in the road the Cheshire cat is sitting there 
He said, I don't know which road to take. And he said, well, where are you going? He said, I don't know. And he said, well, it doesn't matter which road you take. So just go one way and see what happens because you can always come back and go the other way. You know, we live in a really interesting world at the moment. I I've travelled the world. I'm really lucky. All our kids have travelled the world, so we're all really lucky. But there's so much to see and do and be. Be whoever you want to be. You know, I reckon Jamie would have been great at, you know, working with someone like, you know, World Vision or, you know, helping disadvantaged kids in different countries. She would have been great at that sort of job. But there's so much out there for kids to do. They just have to find what they really love to do. You don't have to do what your parents tell you to do. That's your parents' dream. It's not your dream. And there is something out there for everyone, I think. And when we have the permission to follow our curiosity, to knock on those doors, to walk through doors and have that permission to feel sad, to feel lost, to feel excited, to feel hopeful. I remember, Lisa, I was teaching a Year 7 class. I called it Colour My World. And I was talking about how all the emotions are so important. And I remember just saying, it's okay to be sad. And the looks on these young girls' faces was, it's actually okay. Like they just like, oh, we didn't know it was okay because every time we cry, someone sort of rushes in to fix or stop crying or here's a tissue or people don't seem to know what to do when we get sad and when we cry. And to have this beautiful conversation, like it's okay, it's human. It would be strange if we weren't sad. And to look into their eyes and just see the relief, like, oh, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. And just knowing what's the difference between being stuck there but then also knowing when it's an emotion, just like the wave, that it will pass and just to give them that little bit of permission to be human was so magic. And so this is why these conversations are so important because we need to give ourselves and others the permission to be human, to permission to present as we are. So I'm really curious to know now, Lisa, what are some everyday moments in your life that bring you joy? What are they bringing me joy? Um, it sounds weird, but a clean house brings me joy. A nice meal cooked by my husband sitting at the dining room table, not in front of the TV, brings me joy. I like to put my feet up and read a book. Now, I'm yet to do that. Um, I've got all these beautiful books here in my bookshelves. They look nice. You know, I've not had a chance to sit and read a book, like all those books behind you there. When I get a chance, I just want to, Sit down and if I if I get through a book, that would bring me so much joy. <laughs> I'll have to check in with you to see how you go with that project because it is sometimes quite a challenge to actually sit down but then be present enough to keep reading because our mind can race on to the next thing and just to bring it back to this book, this moment, and also finding a book sometimes that we can just escape into. Lisa, Thank you so much for sharing your story. To wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to f finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah. <laughs> I am inspired by. I am inspired by people who do extraordinary things, people who climb unclimbable mountains, people who do things that test them to the inch of their life. Those sort of people really inspire me because it makes us think that then Anything below that is possible. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, I have a loving husband 
my beautiful grandkids that I can always go and visit, or I like to go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> An underrated skill is? Uh, a lot of people don't know, but I, I love crocheting. So I have crocheted all the kids a big blanket. My son got a king-size blanket for his bed for his 21st birthday. It took me two years to do. But, yeah, I just I like crocheting, believe it or not. And I'm looking forward to? I am looking forward to a peaceful life with no emails and not having to talk to people on podcasts. Or <laughs> No, I'm joking. It's been really good fun. Um, no, just, you know, technology is supposed to make our life easier. I have that many messages and emails and things. I, I can't give up with myself. It's supposed to be easier for me, but it's actually been a bit of a um, nuisance, I guess, the last 20 years or so. I can't keep up with myself. But, yeah, just a peaceful life where I can just wake up and potter. I just want to potter, yeah. Oh, that sounds so good. I just want to do that too. I want to wake up and potter in a clean house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, if I have a clean house, if it's, un- if it's clean and uncluttered, your life feels uncluttered. When there's shit everywhere, you just can't function very well. Well, that's me anyway. So we've just moved house, so we've been really, really busy for the last two months. This is the clean side of the screen. <laughs> if you saw that side. There's boxes everywhere, but I've got boxes of books. I sign them all. I'm, I'm actually speaking at a school, which will be wonderful because some of the students will be there. So it'll be really good. That would be absolutely magic. Lisa, thank you so much for being guest on the School of Wellbeing and sharing your story so we can all learn and grow from hearing it. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. What a remarkable human being. And what a privilege to be able to share Lisa's story with you today. Lisa's book is titled Lisa, a memoir of 60 years of life, love and loss, and it's available now in store and online. To learn more about Lisa and her incredible work in the world, you can visit her website, lisacurry.com.au. If you love this episode, please share it with anyone you think that would benefit from hearing Lisa's story and the lessons she has learned along the way. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or join the waitlist for the next round of Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 60. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.